Hello everyone. As we speak, it's London EdTech Week in the UK. So to celebrate, we're putting out an episode of the EdTech podcast every day this week. You'll be hearing from a mixture of amazing teachers and educators, ministries of education, EdTech companies, sleep specialists, and much, much more recorded all over the world. If you enjoy listening, give us a shout out on Twitter at Podcast EdTech and share the London EdTech Week hashtag, hashtag EdTechWeekLDN. Normal service resumes next week. Enjoy! I'm really thrilled because I'm here with Francis Jim Toscano, the legacy teachers from the Global Teacher Prize Network. And Jim is from a school in the Philippines. So welcome, Jim. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be with you for the podcast and everything. Well, Jim, can you explain to our listeners a little bit about your work in the school and whereabouts, the setting in the Philippines, what type of school it is, what your challenges are and how you go about doing your teaching and learning? So I teach in um, Saver School, San Juan. So it's in it's an all-male school, all-boys school right in the city in Metro Manila. I am very, very blessed that I teach in a very progressive school. So we offer an IBDB program at senior high, and we've been doing a lot of innovation. Two years ago, I started to become an administrator. So I currently work as the head ed tech coach for the whole school. So I left the classroom, but I started working with classroom teachers to do focus on technology integration. On the coming school year, I will focus on the grade school as the ed tech coordinator. So basically, we're a one-to-one iPad school, an Apple Distinguished School. I myself is an Apple Distinguished Educator. My work will now focus on integrating project-based learning, makerspace, technology, and STEAM. What kind of age group are we talking about in terms of the children there? Well, age group starts around four or five years old until 11 to 12. So it's like kinder to grade six. We have a junior high school and senior high school. That's how we call them in the Philippines. But right now, I'm focusing more of the kinder to grade six. Okay. And then... The teacher prize winner from last year, Andrea, a lot of that was about creativity and the arts. So do you kind of cover STEM and the arts? Is it integrated or is it more for if children or their parents are focused on being really immersed in STEM, they would choose that school? Yeah, so that's the main challenge right now. That's why we're doing STEAM. Mm-hmm. But the big idea right now in our school is that creativity should be seen in across mm-hmm. uh, curriculum in different subjects. We don't believe in the left brain, right brain, creativity versus logical, Mm -hmm. mathematical way of thinking. We feel like every student is a maker, every student is a creator, whether it's knowledge or maker, thinking of of something. So we believe that creativity, whether it's in arts or whatever form it is, in STEM, robotics, we just believe that innately all students are creative and that should be nourished, fostered, in every subject possible. And then how about yourself? How did you come into being a teacher and then getting into being an ed tech coordinator? Yeah, so interesting. I graduated with a degree in philosophy. Okay. And then I was just thrown into the classroom. This is a, a very different setup. In our school, we have some deregulation from the Department of Education. So we're a private independent school. Okay. So we have that l- certain level of accreditation where it's okay 
to hire teachers who do not have education background, but will have to study education. So I did some education courses. And then on my first year, I taught the religious and values education, a very traditional subject, because I didn't know what, what I'm going to do with a philosophy degree. And then I got to, well, I found myself getting bored of the traditional teaching. That's when I got to experiment with the iPad. So we had some pilot project. I jumped into that pilot project. And from there on, I focused because that's the reality of our students in the Philippines right now, especially in my school. They speak technology. Mm-hmm. They live in a digital world. And if you want to connect with them, you need to speak their language. So from there on, I focus on improving learning, technology. I dub, I've done some research, classroom-based research, while teaching. And those things actually helped me to become a better classroom teacher. And then my principal was like, maybe it's time for you to step out of your classroom and try to work with other teachers. So my focus right now is professional development for, for teachers. But one thing that I require with my teachers right now is I do coaching. I also do team teaching so that I can still go back to the classroom and team teach with them. And you, you mentioned philosophy there. Yeah. So, so, you know, what's your favorite type of philosophy or philosophy that you studied? I would really go back to Marcel. A lot of very... Is that like the meditations? No. No, that's not They're else. more of the contemporary ones. Looking into the meaning of life. Those things. Making sense if life has meaning. Which comforts. Existence. Essentialism. Existentialism. So, things like that. But here's the thing. After graduating with philosophy degree, I found myself not leaving the thoughts and everything. It's just that... All of those thoughts become clearer and realistic once you dive into the real world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you ever feel like you're bringing some of the learning from philosophy into your work in technology and teaching? Because more and more we hear that in the age of artificial intelligence, actually people with an understanding of ethics and philosophy will do well. Oh, that's a great point. So something that I would like to talk about, what I'm doing right now is, since I have an experience in the humanities, Right? I believe that technology and the right mindset of the person, right, humanity itself, could really, really flourish. So I focus on when teaching about kids about STEM or robotics, for example, I would try to bring in empathy, the skill of empathy, what makes us human, the idea of what is the universal good. I mean, like, there's ed tech for good. So the big idea also is that AI will be there. It's something that is bound to happen. In the Philippines, it's still not happening. But it's something that will really, really happen. And what I remind the teachers that I train is that if you teach like the way Google or YouTube or even Khan Academy teaches, right, you'll be replaced. That's my firm belief. But if you teach kids how to be humane, how to be human, to have the skills of empathy, collaboration, all those soft, essential skills Mm -hmm. that AI will not be able to teach, you'll become still relevant to your students. So that's that's a big idea that I've been pushing, especially in the Philippines. I've been uh, speaking in conferences, working with the Department of Education. Right now, to be honest, we're playing catch-up as a country. 
in terms of ICT. We're a, we're a developing country. Access to technology is still a big issue. There are pockets of innovation, but to disrupt the whole education system, we need a larger like systemic disruption. But then again, some schools would really venture on technology too much so mm-hmm. that it becomes the focus. Mm-hmm. Not learning anymore, not the 21st century skills. And I would often remind them that you need to chill on pushing those technology Yeah, tools. don't get swing from one to the other. Yeah. What's the big focus for the government in terms of education at the moment? You know, is there any particular policy that's interesting that's happening? A month ago, the Department of Education of the Philippines did what a big, big national conference on ICT. It's called the Digital Rise. And I think that was a very creative way of saying that, hey, we're going to rise up as a big education system through taking advantage of the digital tools that we have right now. That's one thing. There are other things right now. We just, uh, a few years ago, three transitions to K to K to 12, where one of the few countries before that were, we only had that 10 years of basic education. And making sense of senior high school, how it connects to higher education, it's still a big challenge as of the moment. Uh, I think there, there is a continuous discussion about what's the relevant curriculum for higher education since we have inserted two years of senior high school. So those things, in those places, we try to play catch up, right? But what I like is that there has been solid proof that we are going towards that way. That's why I'm working a lot really to help with the Department of Education. Despite being in an independent private school, mm-hmm. I've been working with them on building a STEAM STEM curriculum, not just on a national level, but even on school school policy level. Like what does it take to have STEAM, robotics? Can we build our own makerspace even if we don't have funding? What kind of training do our teachers need? for those kinds of projects. And then what are some of your favorite tools to, to bring into, whether it's the classroom or professional development, training? Are there any particular things that you keep going back to that might be considered ed tech? It's pretty hard to answer. Uh, on my mind right now, I have a lot of technology tools. A simple one, okay? It's not an app. Well, it's an app, but it's across all. It's a camera. Mm-hmm. Like I really believe that technology should level off right the playing field for all learners whether they're young or adults and sometimes you have students who are disadvantaged and i feel like personalizing learning differentiating learning it will happen if we have the power of the camera app like when you when students can record what they're saying be more transparent about it so i i really love the camera as one of the most or the simplest tool that we can have they can speak you can sing, you can share more about what the things that you're learning and everything. Mm-hmm. So, so it's it. sort of the power of communication and connecting. I, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. It came up a lot on the panel that I was moderating with four teachers. And it was just, you know, a lot of them using WhatsApp, using Skype, using these tools just to connect kids to situations outside of their, their own world as well. It was was quite a powerful one. Yeah, I, I do agree. Uh, especially right now when we confine our students inside the four walls of our classroom. Mm-hmm. We literally say that classes happen inside the classroom when, in fact, technology should be breaking those walls. Mm-hmm. And that's why I love communicating with other people, collaborating mm-hmm. with other people. 
that's one thing. Like, we're in a global education skills forum. The only way to go is to go global, mm-hmm. globally connected. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, on that uh, note, it's been wonderful to connect with you. If people want to find out more, Jim, where, where's the best way for them? Are you on Twitter or? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter. It's at Jim Toscano. I can be reached via email, francisbtoscano.gmail.com. And I have a website. It's francisjimtoscano.com. So, okay, yeah. francisjimtoscano.com. And are you looking for any collaborators in particular at the moment? So if people are listening in. Oh, yeah. So I have an award-winning project by 100.org. Okay, yeah. So my project, it's called Kids Can Innovation Camp. It was recognized as one of the 10 inspiring education innovations for K-12, focusing on sustainability. So I have a global innovation camp that is happening around, that should be happening in a few months. So that's the second year of doing it. If they want to know more, it's, uh, they can email me or tweet me. But there's a project website to it. It's called kidscanproject.weebly.com. Okay, kids.project.weebly.com. And who would you be looking for to come to this? Would it be other educators? Would it be people to sponsor it? Or? Okay, so K-12 educators are open. Uh, if there are people who are open to sponsoring it, that, uh, that would be good. We're, bringing a lot, we're not just bringing collaboration. We have a great framework that focuses on the UN Global Goals or SDGs integrating PBL, STEAM, and Makerspace. Okay, well, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Sophie. Yeah, it was fantastic to have you in the audience today. You know, for our listeners, you've talked a little bit about what your work entails. What are your main goals and what are your hopes in terms of coming to the event today? Who are you hoping to connect with? And, you know, in the next six months, what, what's the kind of main thing that's keeping you up at night? Wait, so uh, we've come all the way from Kenya to this global forum in education because we largely are an organization that is trying to empower children. And you know for sure there's nothing better than education in that matter. Specifically, what we are presenting as an opportunity for collaboration are two matters. One is uh, a scholar leadership program. Uh, I will explain a bit of that and my colleague Edward will say more. And then we have a community innovation challenge fund Basically, what we train our children that we come across with and those who work with children is to prepare children to be problem solvers. And and we know, at least in my country, in the continent, that's been missing, that people mm-hmm. are prepared to look for a job rather than to solve problems. And how we do that is we have a platform where we bring together associates. So you can be an associate at African Institute for Children's Studies, meaning you're an expert who is available to train other people but also to learn from others. And through that, we link you to some young people, children, and you support them to build their skills around how to be leaders and how to solve problems. We've done this in the country in the last 10 years that we've been registered. Previously, we simply, out of 10% of money that we make from our social enterprise, we supported children from low-income households to remain in school. But we want to say it's got to be more than just saying hallelujah. I'm, I'm in school. Yeah. Can you learn to give back, irrespective of your status? Uh, can you learn that you, you can solve problems back in your community? So we have this uh, program that we're doing with GEMS School mm-hmm. uh, in Nairobi, where we, and, and among other schools in the Maasai community, uh, a, a, call, a host of, of about 20 children, 10 girls, 10 boys, who we will take through, support them throughout their lifetime, 
to remain in school, but more importantly, to go back to their community and address a problem. And uh, here we are inviting mm -hmm. other schools globally. We already talking some schools in Switzerland, uh, James Cambridge, like I've talked about in Nairobi, and uh, some potential schools in the US. And we are open, uh, basically, is to pair children with this child from the Maasai community, go back to your school, your community, and, and solve something. Uh, this is within our larger program of doing an innovation challenge because, again, there are many issues that affect communities. We can't wait for uh, people from other continents or, you know, someone to come and solve it. Yeah, yeah. Can we train our children to do that? So it's really a project-based learning approach. And, and what are some of those issues that you would like your young learners to be passionate about solving? Again, we, we come from a premise of a participatory approach. Uh, to, to child development. So we really don't want to be prescriptive, mm -hmm. but I'll give you some examples. We've worked with this young girl from uh, Dandora slums, uh, informal settlement in, in Nairobi, and she's been supported and she thought, why don't I do something about access to sanitary pads mm -hmm. for girls in, in her neighborhood? But even beyond that, to give some education to other girls on how mm -hmm. to use sanitary pads, because mm -hmm. that's also missing the hygiene issues around that. And so we link her up to a mentor who is a public health expert. She volunteers her time to go and train her, work with her. How do you pass this information during times when she has break, weekends, and, and those kind of moments. So ultimately, she's learning how to give back. The mm. community then learns. So it will be really up to any child. Maybe someone will say, I want to plant trees. Maybe someone will say, I want to address female genital cutting yeah, yeah. that is happening in the Maasai community. So it's, it's not for us to tell them what to do because we think that is part of leadership development. Yeah, yeah. amazing. Yes. Have you seen any of your students sort of going up through that program and, and have they become adults yet or is it still, I think you said um, it's been going for 10 years, is that right? We, yes, we've existed for 10 years mm -hmm. and we've been doing capacity building. We've done the education fund where we supported children from 10% of our net income in social enterprise. But that was it, you know, you will get a one-off support and there was nothing else. So beginning this year, now that's how we bring on board James Cambridge School mm -hmm. in Nairobi. We want now, and seeking out other partners. Okay, so any schools listening in can Great. Uh, be yes, partners? Yes, they can reach out to us. And, and uh, we'll sign up really uh, both at school level at individual. But of course, like anything, you want to begin carefully. Mm -hmm. So we'll do a pilot of 20 children. Yeah. In Kenya, we don't mind if we pair or uh, what do you call it when they're three or four, four some uh, them. Yeah, <laughs> no, sure. You have to be careful with these things. You know, yes. Uh, <laughs> so they may be for children, but we, we're trying to also break, you know, prejudices around mm -hmm. uh, these continents, race and everything else. Yeah. So we hope if we can have one child from America joining in another one from the UK. It's kind of what the teacher from Japan was talking about, you know, having this ability to go beyond your physical setting as well and, exactly. and kind of, you know, bring different cultures and kind of conversations together. That's right, that's yeah. right. And ultimately, they, they, they can fundraise together. They'll be linked up to a mentor and our pool of mentors really are cutting across. So that's another opportunity. We're looking for anyone who, of course, will do a background check to make mm -hmm. sure that, you know, child protection or child safety is, is ensured through this process. But once you get into our associate pool, you can be among those who can mentor another child or this group of children to do something about it. Okay. Yes. So what I was going to ask uh, your colleague here, who asked a fantastic question in our session, was, you know, what's the role of technology in all of this? And, um, you know, how can we make sure that it's technology for good? Um, well, 
like uh, we said before, uh, technology is so good, and uh, uh, but we not we need to let our children know that uh, there are things, bad things that are happening, and uh, they need to be very careful. So that brings about the question of how do we ensure that uh, we bring uh, technology and education at the same time, keep our children safe. So at the moment, as an organization, what we are doing, we are implementing a project called, with other partners, of course, called Online Child Sexual Exploitation under, the, under Online Safety, where we tell, go to schools and give them a, a session-based curriculum a training on how they can be safe, uh, basically from the point of understanding that they, are, they can be at risk and uh, prevention, well, what they can do to prevent themselves from being at risk, uh, responding and even being supportive of the victims of uh, online safety issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, and then, so people listening in, um, so you're looking for mentors, you're looking for potential other schools, but in the first instance in, in, a, in a kind of pilot environment, mm-hmm. what are your kind of goals longer term? Like, what would you love to see come out of this project? What we want to see is uh, to have, uh, uh, you know, children understand because uh, we're not going to tell any child or any parent out there not to support their children accessing these gadgets. But we want them to understand uh, how to be responsible while they are using the online platform. What we are looking in the long term is to have partners to take this uh, gospel forward so that we can make our children. Because remember, when we do uh, check even the comparative studies, we don't have really, we don't have a clear place where we can look upon and say this is how these things are done. Mm-hmm. We are just looking uh, at people, how they are doing it, and uh, we tell people can we advise each other on how we can uh, make our children be safe online. I will add to really a question you asked in the long term, so what, what do we want to see? This is why we're launching the African uh, Innovation Challenge Fund because one, we believe in a rights-based approach where everyone has to be empowered to be able to look, first of all, within themselves, to protect themselves and develop themselves. So in this case, we want to empower children. In the case of online safety, you cannot police the internet enough, never. And, and you know, there's a mentor that out there, your child will make a decision at some point, whether they're 18, they're 25, and you will not be there. How can you be sure that they'll make the right decision? It depends on how you empower them. So, so we are looking at that. And we are looking at a society where uh, children grow up to be innovators, to be problem solvers. And so this is where we are inviting a, a very long-term partnership in doing this. We are already reaching out to other groups, including African Leadership Academy, and, um, and, and really trying to empower people to look around them solve matters. Where did your funding come from at the moment? Is it a government project or? Over the last 10 years, we've funded our projects from a social enterprise. Yeah. So we, we have really good team that can do evaluations, uh, can mm-hmm. do training. So if you're out there and you're looking for a business process outsourcing, you know, if you want to introduce a product within the community yeah. and you want a feasibility study, you don't need to come and do it. You can involve us and some of that money goes into supporting children. Okay. But uh, we're just beginning now to get into some funded projects with Terradezon, for example, in Netherlands and uh, Open Society Initiative addressing mental health issues, which are really big gaps. Yes, we're interested in anything. You can come in on board as long as we are within trying to address child protection and mm-hmm. improving child development. And do you partner with people like uh, EdTech Nairobi? 
you know? We, we, we haven't uh, worked with Airtech Nairobi. I know in Nairobi, for example, we've worked with Narrowbytes. Okay. Uh, but mm-hmm. more from Narrow a consultant Bites. point where yeah. we've supported them to review how they work with children in the streets, children, you know, and support them to be better. How can you develop models of what are most effective? So we, in some way, we call ourselves the, the soft side. You know, we, we develop the software of, of, of child protection. Uh, what do you call this uh, place in you, in the US where you develop technology? Like an accelerator. Uh, so, yes, we, we, we are the Silicon Valley on <laughs> on children, really. Yeah, yeah. So so that that's, that's that's the place we want to be known, and and we we really increasingly get into that space because of the kind of people we have, because yeah, we want yeah. to influence policymakers. We we want to be able to support African Union and those teams that are making those decisions, and we are there because we support civil societies okay. to to empower them within the SDG. And so, if people want to find out more, what's the best place for them to go? They can check out our website, uh, www.institutechildstudies.org. Okay. And, uh, of course, they can find our contacts, and we'd be very willing to set up time. Wonderful. Okay, well, thank you very much, gentlemen. Thank you, sir. So I'm here with Aaron Friedland from Simbi in Vancouver. So welcome. Thanks, Sophie. Yeah, no, it's brilliant. We finally connected. It's one of those things where you're trying to chase each other down over the last sort of 48 hours. And I believe it was Jamie Brooker that put us in contact. So, Yeah, he did. So Jamie's been advising Simbi and the team and I for the last eight months. And he is the most incredible human being who has really helped us put students and put, yeah, put the learner first. He's got a beautiful learner-centric approach. And it's just been an honor to work with him. We were just sort of singing his praises together. Well, can you tell our listeners a little bit about Simbi and your work there? And then we can go on to some of the other projects we were talking about before as well. For sure. So when you think about Simbi, well, first we should start with literacy and reading, because that's really what Simbi does. Simbi helps people fall in love with reading. And Simbi was developed largely from my experiences as a child with dyslexia, struggling learning to read and really not being able to navigate the learning ecosystem. And some of my early teachers noticed that I couldn't read particularly well and had suggested that I should read a book and simultaneously listen to the audio recording. And so this bimodal approach of reading while listening is understood to be the most effective way to learn how to read. And It turns out that reading while listening worked pretty well for me. And over the course of using this methodology for a big part of my elementary school and then later high school, um, I was able to go off to university despite early teachers telling my parents that I very likely wouldn't. And today I'm doing a PhD in economics looking at the uh, impact of reading while listening. And this reading while listening approach is a core piece of Simbi. And with it, over, I guess, the last few months, we've been able to partner with the United Nations, uh, with National Geographic, and with Pratham Books, India's largest publishing house. And when you think about reading while listening, one of the questions is, well, how do you make content available to be read while listened to? And so what we've done is we've developed a platform that enables people to create or to consume content. So when we think of reading while listening, that would be consuming content. Creating content is a process whereby people read books out loud. And when they read a book out loud, Simbi takes their voice and text and amalgamates it to create these engaging audiovisual books that then people around the world can read while listening to. And so 
what's been really beautiful about this journey with Simbi is two quite interesting things happen when you read a book out loud. So the first thing is that when you read a book out loud and when you understand that this book is going to be consumed by, let's say, 90,000 children in a UNHCR refugee settlement, like the Bidi Bidi refugee settlement, where Simbi is a partner with the UN, or in communities across Uganda, India, or even in Vancouver and communities in Scandinavia, when you read out loud for good, students are really motivated because they understand the impact, the social impact that their voice can have. But the other thing that's quite interesting is that when you read out loud using speech recognition, we're able to show students how their literacy is improving. And when we think about the current climate of technology, we require instant gratification. We need to see how we're improving immediately. We like to see that like. We like to see we're just used to it. And so when you're able to show a child or a student how their word correct per minute, as an example, is improving over time, you're able to really motivate them to read more. But you're also able to provide teachers and parents with this data. And so in doing so, you're able to help a parent or a teacher be more meaningfully involved in a student's literacy journey. And when they are, they are better equipped to understand if a child has dyslexia, if a child is simply struggling, confusing their lowercase b's and d's, but what sort of direct personalized help you can do to support that learner. And it's been a very interesting process like, building this. And, and how long has Simbi been going for? So Simbi has been around for 11 months. 11 months. Well, and how many users do you have at the moment, or how many learners are on the platform? So we have 12,000 learners okay. at the moment, and we're looking to scale quite quickly. And a, a big part of that has actually been, sorry, Jamie, have to keep singing your praises here, but uh, has really been J Jamie's push to put the learner first and to realize it doesn't matter, you can build all the dashboards for teachers that you want, but if the child does not enjoy interacting with the, with the program, if they're not passionate about it, and if they're not motivated to keep going back, then the parents aren't going to be requesting it, and the teachers aren't really going to be motivated to keep using it. So, you know, in the refugee camp context of this, is this all done through smartphones? I did an interview previously with a researcher that was doing a lot of ed tech in uh, sort of refugee camps and that kind of thing and he was also sort of saying to challenge this assumption that people don't have smartphones and you know it's not necessarily always the case so I was just interested in how people are accessing uh, needing to upload their content or consume it. Yeah that's a great question. So yeah in terms of the refugee settlements you will see 80% to 100% cell phone penetration uh, sometimes even higher than that sometimes people in the refugee settlement will have one or two cell phones. And so they're, they're definitely prevalent. Smartphones, not always as widely prevalent as you may think. The way that we get around that is we've developed a kind of innovative approach where we use these Raspberry Pi microcomputers. And what we do is once a month, all of the content on Simbi's online library is downloaded and saved on an offline library. And it's put onto all of these microcomputers. And then what happens is all of the schools that have these microcomputers, they're now able, all of their tablets, all of the cell phones, all of the technology in the school is able to connect directly to that microcomputer's intranet, which is the localized intranet that this computer creates, emits. So these schools don't have to pay a monthly fee for the content. 
And more importantly, there isn't any negative externalities or negative unintended consequences of having the internet, of having the World Wide Web, because earlier through previous trials, what we had seen was if you provide a school with internet, teachers get quite excited about the prospect of email and Facebook and other things that we can't control just yet. So we focus on an offline intranet system, and that's how it's currently deployed. Very interesting. And so you, I think you mentioned that the schools don't have to pay anything. Yeah. So how are you kind of funding this at the moment? Is it through working with sort of NGO partners and that kind of thing in terms of funding? Yeah, so actually I should qualify that. So in the refugee settlements and in the partner communities across Uganda and India, the schools don't pay. But we have schools across the US and Canada that do pay. And we also have parents that pay. Okay. So we have parents pay $10 a month to follow their child's literacy journey. And a dashboard shows them pretty brilliant insights. Also, a parent is able, for example, to read a book out loud so that their child can read while listen to it. Mm-hmm. Or one of the things that the parents enjoy the most, and my favorite feature, is something called Read with Friends. Mm-hmm. And so what that is, is you can take a book, let's say, a Rudyard Kipling's uh, Ricky Tikki Tavi, as an example. And you can say, okay, I want to read this book. And rather than just clicking read out loud, you'll click read with friends. And now you can invite as many pages as there are in that book, you can invite a friend to read. And now each of you can read that page out loud, and then it comes together as this audiovisual book that people can now read while listening to. And so we see a lot of families really enjoying uh, engaging in this process of collectively reading a book out loud and then sharing it with their grandparents or their yeah, members. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I imagine, like the, the kind of wider family reading grandchildren and that kind of thing. It was interesting what that you mentioned there because do you know Yoto Play? Have you come across that? Yoto Play? Yeah, no, so I they. Haven't. Okay, it's like a screenless device for early years and beyond that. So it comes with like a card. Most of them are preloaded with content. So, for example, they've got a partnership with the Royal Dahl Estate and that kind of thing. And so a child will then put that card into a box and it will sort of play content and stories and music. And so it's meant to be kind of like a podcast for children, but it's screenless, so it's not too distracting as we were talking about. But one of the cards you can kind of do exactly that, so you can preload content onto it or yeah so I was just thinking maybe you guys should should have a chat interesting crossovers there and then what we talked about before a tale unfolds and also Pobble in the UK do some interesting work around literacy I think a lot of this is about that the power of sharing isn't it so it's like the content isn't just static you're not just listening to other people reading you're involved or there's those familiar voices that have that higher resonance in your life and then the the ability to, to kind of change and, and share your work as a as a child with everyone around the world seems to have this really interesting effect. That, that's exactly it. And something that we think is really quite important is when you look at essentially humanity's tendency towards illiteracy right now, for the first time in history, we have higher income countries experiencing increasing rates of illiteracy, which is really problematic. And when you think about this, you realize, well, something has to change, right? Because we're losing our habit, we're losing the power of reading. And when we think about the word homo sapiens or us mm-hmm. being wise people, we really are this way because of literacy and because of our ability to read. And so what we see is over the last 5,000 years, reading really hasn't changed much. And being able to provide students and provide people with a new medium to actually engage in this activity and to become increasingly motivated to read is crucial because we, we will lose it. And so if you can start combining things like read with friends, network effects, if you can also just make 
the process of reading a little bit easier by having this bimodal activity of reading while listening, then we can start to rebuild that habit of reading. And it's something that, yeah, we're really passionate about doing. And you were sort of saying before about how some of the, the stories that have come about are being collected and put in a book and, and published. So can you sort of tell us how that's come about and, and who that's in partnership with as well? For sure. So one of the things that we do is Simbi's, one of Simbi's partners is called The Walking School Bus. It's a really amazing nonprofit organization. And what The Walking School Bus will do is they work across uh, Uganda and India. And what we'll do is we will work with uh, students in refugee settlements or children at, let's say, the Himalayan public school in rural Uttarakhand, northern India. And these children will work with Ruchi Shah, and that's the walking school bus's art director. And she gets them to draw the most beautiful illustrations that are relevant to their location, where they're from. And Ruchi will have a manuscript that's already been written. And she'll, so she'll tell the children what these stories are and what, what this manuscript is about. And then over a period of time, uh, these children just draw the most beautiful illustrations that then actually become these really great books that get published in partnership with Pratham Books, which is India's largest publishing house, and then are put onto Simbi and are read out loud by, um, often by the children who have helped to illustrate these books so that they can then be read while listened to. And one of the things that's so beautiful about this whole process and something that I'm the most proud of when it comes to Simbi and one of the reasons that we've partnered with National Geographic is that every single unit, every single book in Simbi is uploaded as what we call a discrete unit. And what that means is that every single book can be read out loud by every single user on Simbi. And every single user is able to set their accent type and their location. And so these children in northern India, in Uttarakhand, they are able to say where they're from. And then another child in that community, they can choose to read while listening to this book. And they don't have to listen to a British accent or a South African accent or my Canadian South African accent. They can listen to an accent that they're familiar with. And through multivariate randomized control trials that are part of my PhD and a part of uh, some amazing research that we're working on, what we see is that being able to read while listen, when it's in an accent that you're familiar with, significantly increases motivation and subsequently fluency gains, which we track in something called word correct per minute which is how we objectively track fluency games. Very, very interesting. When you were talking there, recalled, so I, a long time ago, ran the London Marathon, and like one of the joys of that is, you know, you're running and you just hear all of these different voices and these different dialects. There's a real richness in that. And you mentioned that you've got some interesting people reading. So Julian Lennon, that's uh, John Lennon's son, uh, has offered to read books out loud with us. And we've got a few other well-known creators and well-known artists, musicians who have offered to read books out loud. And so now we're just in the process of finalizing which books they're actually going to be narrating for us. And in the next month and a half or so, we should be releasing some of that, uh, some of those initial uh, books. Wonderful. Yeah. And maybe we can actually get you to read a book out loud at some point as well. Yeah, I'd love to read a book. If I would go onto the App Store, can I download Simbi there? So, no. Right now, it's a web-based app. Okay, yeah. yeah. Uh, the reason that we've done it this way is purely accessibility in mind. Also, it's interesting. I'm not sure if you've spoken to other app creators out there, but in the U.S. and I guess across North America, there's a little bit of uncertainty with what's happening between Android and, and iPad really dominating the classroom market. 
And so being as young as we are and being as focused on impact as we are, we didn't want to develop a native Android or iOS device and not be able to scale impact in these mm -hmm. refugee settlements. So what we've been doing is we've developed it as a web base that works beautifully on both platforms. And then as soon as we have a little more understanding in terms of whether iOS or Android's going to win or raise more money, we'll start developing the native apps as well. Well, and so in the next sort of six months to a year, what, what is kind of the main focus? Is there a sort of funding element to that? If people are listening in, who can help out? What, do, what kind of partnerships are you looking for? That is a brilliant question. <laughs> yeah, a few partnerships. So we're looking to raise another million dollars. So that's something that will be very helpful. And actually, uh, $100,000 is allocated directly for a scaling Simbi in the refugee settlements. So after we've done, we've done a series of randomized control trials, and we see that it vastly improving student fluency, um, as much as 2x in as little as three months. So it's quite substantial. And so now we're looking to allocate a lot of the funding to make sure that we can further help uh, another 90,000 uh, students in the Bidi Bidi refugee settlements so that, that's a funding piece. We're always looking for more people for, let's say you're a researcher and you're interested in validating some of our data, you're interested in helping to run trials. We'd love additional researchers working with us. We're always looking for people who are passionate narrators who want to read books out loud with Simbi and help actually create impact. How else could you support? We're also growing our team. So if you're just passionate about literacy and you're a solid UX designer, a brilliant developer, Come talk to us. Okay, wonderful. And best way for people to get in contact or find out what you're doing? They can reach me directly at aaron at simbi.io. Okay. And you can check out simbi.io to read books for good and positively support people around the world. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much, Aaron. Thank you, Sophie.